thanks everyone for coming to this uh, discussion tonight. Um, we have three uh, very interesting scientists from the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, um, each with different expertise. I'm going to introduce them briefly, but I think you'll see as the sort of discussion continues, you know, the sort of areas that they're particularly concentrated on. Um, to my right is Bob Butnitz. Budnitz. Um, he's been involved with nuclear reactor safety and radioactive waste safety for many years. Um, he's on the scientific staff at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. Um, he works on nuclear power safety and security and waste management. Um, he's held various positions uh, in uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, wide experience in all sorts of areas of reactor design um, and operation. Um, Ed Morse is on the faculty of the Department of Nuclear Engineering at UC Berkeley, and he's also a faculty science, scientist at the Ber lab, Lawrence Berkeley Lab. Um, his particular area is measuring radiation, um, but he's also involved in um, he's a principal investigator for the Domestic Nuclear Threat Security Project at UC Berkeley. Um, so um, some interesting experience there as well. Tom McCone um, is involved in environmental health. He's a senior staff scientist in the Environmental Energy Technologies Division at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab. He's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at UC Berkeley. Um, so a diverse set of uh, knowledge around the issues concerning Fukushima and um, its effects. Um, to start off the discussion, I think maybe it would be interesting. Um, Bob, could you explain, you know, from your point of view, what exactly happened March 11th and the subsequent days at the reactors, um, and you know, how do you judge that, those events? Thank you. Well, I could... I could make this three minutes or 30 or 300. Let's have three. But I'm going to make it three. <laughs> um, there are six reactors on that site, and they were all built uh, in the 70s. The first one came on in 1971, and by the end of that decade, they, uh, there are six of them. They're all GE-designed uh, boiling water reactors, although the last two or three were constructed in Japan rather than by General Electric. And they've been running ever since the, uh, the utilities Tokyo Electric Power. The main challenge in any nuclear power reactor, that size or any size, is that there's a large vessel filled with water, fuel rods are inside it, and the chain reaction heats the water and the water drives a turbine. And the main challenge is you always have to keep that <coughs> underwater. That's the, that's the safety challenge that every safety engineer deals with all the time. You've got to keep the fuel underwater. And the reason is that after the reactor's been running, if the water disappears from the fuel, it will quickly melt and release a whole lot of radioactivity, which at first stays in this vessel. But pressure will rise, and it'll be released from the vessel. Outside it is a very large concrete containment, but um, the containment could be breached too, and radioactivity would go outside. And what happened at, uh, at these reactors is just that. Now, just to give you the background, there are six of them. <laughs> Units 1, 2, and 3 were running. They were operating at the time of the earthquake and the tsunami. Units 4, 5, and 6 were not running. They not only weren't running, but the fuel was out of the reactors. There was no fuel in any of them, so they're completely safe. There was no problem with them. Uh, 
their fuel was in the spent fuel pools, which are uh, in the same building as the reactor, and I'll talk about that just briefly. So the earthquake came along. It was the largest earthquake, perhaps you know, in the last um, couple thousand years in Japan, although you don't really know how, how big they were going f very far back. And when the earthquake uh, struck, all the reactors behaved, the three that were running, behaved just as designed. That is, they shut down, the control rods went in, <coughs> the off-site power was lost. Uh, the, the reactors are powered uh, not by their own power, but from the grid. And that was lost because of the earthquake. But there's on-site power, uh, diesel generators. And all the diesel generators started just fine. And they provided on-site power. And for the first 40 or so minutes, uh, uh, it was behaving just the way it's supposed to. As best we can tell, there was no damage from the, earth, from the, uh, from the earthquake, although we're not sure yet. Uh, later there might be some. But for that first period, there was no damage from the earthquake. They wrote out the earthquake fine. But as you know, a tsunami came about 40 or however many minutes later. And it was between 35 and 40 feet high, an incredibly large tsunami. And it completely swamped the site. In particular, it knocked out the power. It knocked out the on-site diesel generator power. It knocked out both the fuel supply for all those diesel generators and also the electric distribution systems. And so they were in a situation that we call a blackout. That is, they had no, they had no electrical power. The reactors are designed to run without electrical power because they have pumps and systems that will put water back into the, into the vessel. That uh, The pumps run on the steam that the vessel itself is producing because the vessel's hot and it's producing steam, and some of that steam runs these systems. And they all ran fine, except that one after the other, units one and then two and then three, those systems fail. And when they failed, quickly the... Um, the reactors, all three of them, one after the other, got too hot. The water boiled off. There was no replacement water. The core melted, at least in our estimation, the estimate, estimation of the community that looks at this, somewhere between a third and two-thirds of the cores melted in all three of those reactors. The exact numbers aren't really known yet, and we're not going to know until sometime later when we get inside. So those cores melted, and a lot of that fuel slumped to the bottom. And in order to save the reactors, because they had no water to put in, the reason is that they, they've, they had systems to put it in that didn't work, and they had what we call city water coming from, you know, someplace off-site. But, of course, the earthquake destroyed that. And the only way to get water back into those, uh, those vessels was to bring in, which they did, special pumps, and they pumped it in from the sea. Filled it with seawater, and that stabilized the situation. And it's been relatively stable ever since. That happened all in the first day or two. And ever since then, it's been relatively stable with seawater, and now finally putting fresh water back into those vessels to replace the seawater. But in the course of all of this, the vessel didn't remain completely intact. There are um, valves and seals and flanges that leaked significantly, and the water went out from there into the containments and went out from the containments into the uh, outside buildings. And also, because the pressure rose, there are uh, safety and relief valves that uh, relieve the pressure. And uh, Non-condensable gases went out there, mostly noble gases, which are radioactive, and they brought with them some of the volatile iodine and cesium, and that's what's in the environment. So within uh, certainly the third day, a whole lot of stuff had escaped from those things, that the root cause of which was because they, were, <coughs> they ran out of power, and those uh, steam-driven systems failed too, and... Um, and the seawater got in too late, so the, so the cores melted, and they're still there. 
I'll just leave you the one, one of, there's a lot more to say, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave you one other thought. We're not out of the woods yet. And what I mean by that is that there's still some possibility because they have jury rigged a whole lot of things out there, power and so on and water. And jury rigged systems don't necessarily always work reliably, especially for months, and they have to work for months or maybe even a year or two. And so right now, the Japanese, with the assistance from a lot of other, uh, other places, including us, are, are rigging up backup systems of those jury rig systems. So if they fail, there'll be something right there to, to pick up the load, the electrical load and the water load and so on. One last thing, I'll only take a minute to say. The fourth, fifth, and sixth units, the fourth unit in particular, the, <coughs> core wasn't, the, core, the, the nuclear core wasn't in the reactor. It was in the spent fuel pool. And they lost cooling to that. They lost water there. And it also had a very large release, uh, as best we can tell, from that spent fuel pool. Units 5 and 6 didn't, but Unit 4 did. And so the large releases came from the three reactors, and the, the fourth one, it was that fresh core in the spent fuel pool that was, that was its release. And now water is going back in there, and that, that one we hope is going to be stable also. Okay. Now, uh, just one other thing. Nobody at this stage, no, just to say, nobody at this stage knows whose fault this is, whatever fault means. We're not sure whether or not they were designed well but operated poorly, or there was a design flaw, or maybe the regulations weren't adequate, or there was some other. We're not sure where whatever fault there is that caused this lies, and we're not going to know for a long time. So nobody in the community I'm in is pointing any fingers at the moment. We're just trying to, everybody's working to try to keep it stable. And only later will we try to figure out, not, not pointing fingers to cause, uh, to, to blame, but to try to figure out what we can learn that could make sure that this wouldn't happen somewhere else. But still too early to do that. Okay. Now, I, I'm not sure what sort of level of expertise we have in the audience, but you used you know, some of the descriptions you used. In the popular parlance, people talk about it's a meltdown. And you it said, was. And you said one-third to two-thirds of the core is melted down. What does that actually mean? Well, um, the core is um, a ceramic, uranium ceramic, with a lot of fission products uh, from the radioactive fission products in it, surrounded by a metallic cladding. It's um, zirconium cladding. And when it gets too hot, it melts. Okay? It's as simple as that. It, it's, in, it's in a configuration at first that's okay, and then it melts. And so it's this big sort of debris bed of core material that is many, many tons at the bottom of the vessel. Okay, and that creates a huge cleanup problem subsequently. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. it's going to be awful. Okay, in Bob's explanation of the events, you know, he said there were releases of radiation. And, you know, that's your field. How significant were the releases, and, and what do they mean? Well, uh, we're, we're still learning what the releases are. If you've read the news in the last day, you'll probably hear that uh, the Japanese government has raised this uh, rating of this accident from a 5, which was the same as Three Mile Island, to a 7, which is the same as Chernobyl. It's sort of surprising that they went these two full levels. But um, that's uh, right now they're looking at an equivalent release from the machine's total uh, from the, the three damaged reactors plus the spent fuel pool on number four, which is about a tenth of Chernobyl, maybe a bit less, depending on whose book you read there. Um, so I'd like to add one thing to Bob's story, which may help a little bit. 
This is a genuine GE fuel rod right here. This is uh, zirconium. This doesn't have any uranium in it today. <laughs> okay. Now, um, uh, this material gets very hot, and it reacts with water. Uh, if it gets uncovered, it gets white hot, and then there's more water that splashes on it somehow. It releases hydrogen gas. Uh, if all of this material uh, went into a chemical reaction in one of these plants, it makes the equivalent of one-fifteenth of a Hindenburg, which is to say about 60 tons of TNT, an equivalent explosive energy. So uh, most of this accident was actually within the playbook that got written back in the 1970s called WASH 1400, big government report on uh, these reactor accidents. Right. But the one that took everybody by surprise was that uh, when uh, they started having the hydrogen gas accumulate in the rooftops of these buildings, uh, and they exploded one by one, then reactor number four, which as Bob said, was minding its own business in sort of a shutdown with the fuel and spent fuel pool, got the roof from number three. Now, this was not on their plan. All right, and so that... Right, who would have believed? Yeah, it was, this was something that was really sort of you stand back and you, you have a certain lesson learned from that process. All right, and that spent fuel pool is essentially the contents of a reactor which had been dormant for a mere three or four months. I think November they defueled it. And, and so it's still a serious amount of radioactivity without the benefit of containment. Now, additionally... It has the roof of another building on top of it, which means you can't very well fill it with water. This was the scariest part of this whole accident from my perspective, that you had no way to actually get at this fuel. And, and came to the scene the Putzmeister. The Putzmeister is this enormous boom for pouring concrete. And they've managed to very, very carefully be able to inject water in that reactor. That's helped quite a bit. But there certainly were some large releases from that spent fuel pool, and you could see the white smoke billowing out as these fuel rods up there were getting very hot, covered with water, and releasing a lot of material. Now, as soon as this accident started, uh, uh, I suggested to some of my colleagues that we do the same thing uh, that happened to me. I was an assistant professor here in 1979, uh, three weeks before Chernobyl hit. My career has been, I mean, uh, Three Mile Island hit. I'm sorry. My career has been downhill ever since. And uh, uh, I said, well, when we had a reactor in Berkeley, we could measure air particulates on the roof uh, from, from uh, Three Mile Island. And there was, uh, I mean, and, or from Chernobyl. I'm sorry, it came later. Uh, we see, definitely see Chernobyl. We didn't see Three Mile Island. But um, at, at, at that time, uh, I said, well, with Fukushima, we might start seeing something. So some of my colleagues, Kai Vetter and Rick Norman, have been busy uh, doing air monitoring. I think if you visited the Berkeley uh, website, www.nuke.berkeley.edu, you'll see uh, daily reports. And we aren't screening anything. As soon as we have uh, what we consider competent assessment of the data, we've been posting it. You may be interested to know that at one point, March 23rd, uh, the rainwater in Berkeley hit sort of a record of having uh, a level of iodine in it, 131, which was uh, approximately uh, five times higher than that's allowed in drinking water by the EPA. Now, that has vanished since, but we can measure all these things. It's still safe enough to the general public. Uh, in fact, we put on there how many liters of this water you'd have to drink in order to get the equivalent of a round-trip plane uh, uh, flight from here to Washington, D.C., and 
Uh, it turns out it would be something on the order of 600 liters in the worst day from that. Uh, I haven't met anyone in Berkeley that drinks rainwater, but uh, if you do, I would, I would avoid March 23rd bottled rainwater on that date. Um, it's decayed by now. Yeah, it's decayed by now. Um, so uh, uh, we've been busy measuring iodine and, and cesium in various foodstuffs and occasionally found something. It hasn't been real high, but we like putting that data out there because it's my feeling that uh, the way through this uh, as individuals and as a public is total transparency. So we've been trying to, to uh, uh, give you all of the uh, data that we have uh, from that accident. Um, uh, the rough quantity that they're talking now that got released from this accident is, uh, I think I already said this, but it's about 10 megacuries of radioactivity into the air. I suspect that will be revised downwards later, but I, wouldn't, uh, I can't really count on it. But it's likely to me that this accident will go down in history ultimately as a 6 and not a 7. And that's my personal opinion, and it's also the opinion of the government of France and various other authorities on this subject. So time will tell. As Bob said, we're early into this accident. We don't know everything. And uh, that's what I have to say. So when we wrote about those measurements on Echeverry Hall on Berkeley side, a lot of people commented and said, hang on a second. You're talking about ingesting water or locally produced milk, I think you also were measuring. Um, And then you're comparing that to taking a plane flight. How do those two things match up? Because one is actually entering your body, the other is just you're exposing yourself to radiation. And and people commented and said, isn't there greater danger in ingestion compared to exposure? Well, you can put together a table of relative risk from doing that. Um, uh, It it is a a little bit of a a problem in comparing those things precisely. It's... uh, uh, sort of like saying uh, how many tabs of LSD equals one can of malt liquor. You know, it's not a, uh, a perfect science there. Um, the point is, is that there is a critical organ involved with the iodine. It's your thyroid. You get a dose to that, and that's, uh, that causes a special type of uh, problem uh, that is not the same as, as, say, the overall elevated risk of leukemia and other diseases. But... Uh, <clears throat> There is a vague Rosetta Stone that you can have between the two, and, and I personally wouldn't give it any more credence than a factor of five, but it's certainly not a factor of a million. Okay. So, Tom, that goes directly towards your area, which, you know, what does this mean for health? I mean, let's, let's concentrate at first for people in Japan, maybe the 12-mile the zone, uh, maybe the sort of broader area in Japan. What do these kind of releases mean in terms of health? And then... Let's look at what that means across the Pacific. Yeah. Well, I think it's good to, to start out by you know, talking a little bit about what's in the reactor and, and the significance. Okay. And, and Bob mentioned some of the things that come out. There, uh, in an active core, a mature core that's been operating, there's a very large inventory of radioactivity, and there's hundreds of radionuclides in there. And so it's very interesting. People kind of say, well, why are you only worried about these? Well, the ones that we worry about are, first of all, the ones that are volatile enough to come out. And uh, secondly, we worry about the ones that are in high inventory. And even though there are hundreds of different radionuclides, the abundance are in really a handful. And those are the ones we hear about. Iodine, well, there's the noble gases, but they come out, and they're not particularly of a health concern. Uh, iodine, which is liquid, almost a gas at room temperature, if it gets hot at all, 
And if the fuel elements fail in any way, you can have iodine coming out in large quantities. And these are the radioactive isotopes of iodine? The radioactive isotopes. Well, the non-radioactive, or the low, they're all, there are several. Yeah, yeah. But the one we're concerned about is iodine-131 because right. of its uh, relatively longer half-life. As temperature gets warmer, um, you will start volatilizing uh, the cesium. Now, cesium has several hundred degree uh, boiling point, uh, but it gets very hot. So it comes out and it condenses immediately into very fine particles. Uh, and so this is what we hear about. People say the particles. Well, they're so small, often you don't see them because they're, they're a volatile metal that's condensing onto particles or right. just condensing itself into the atmosphere. That's what comes out. If it gets even hotter, we'll start seeing uh, strontium. And we haven't seen that. And I, I don't think the temperature has gotten up to that point. Right. And even hotter than that, then some of the uh, actinides, uh, the plutonium, will start coming out. So that's sort of the stages. In, in a way, this is how the nuclear engineers can, can label that they were seeing things from the reactor because these compounds don't exist sure. in the environment. So let's go through these and talk about what we're uh, concerned about. Iodine, uh, eight-day half-life. So roughly, the, you know, the rule we have is 10 half-lives is essentially gone. So that's 80 to 90 days. There won't be any left at all. Okay. Uh, but it's going down by half every, every eight days. Um, uh, iodine, when it's taken into your body, it's uh, rather quickly uh, sequestered into the thyroid. Um, and there it's been associated with uh, uh, thyroid tumors. Uh, but uh, the, the fatality rate of thyroid tumors is less than 1%. So you, you can get them, but, but this is not really an issue for the Japanese because they got people out and they got them potassium iodide, which for that population is probably the correct thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the cesium is uh, a different problem. Uh, cesium has a 30-year radioactive half-life. It persists in the human body for um, somewhere around 70 to 100 days. So when you take it in, it, it'll uh, distribute in your body. Unlike iodine, uh, cesium is distributed fairly uniformly in soft tissues. It accumulates in, in muscle uh, and some of, the, um, some of the other soft tissues. It does not accumulate in the bone. That's strontium. But of course, we're not seeing strontium. Uh, now, cesium, because it's fine particles, can drift in the atmosphere and also can deposit out. And that's where you know, it, it's soluble, relatively soluble, so it washes out of the air with the rain. Uh, the wind patterns move it differently. That's why we're seeing hot spots. You don't, if you go to Japan, you don't see a, a uniform concentration of radioactivity in that 18-mile or 20- or 50-mile radius. You'll see hot spots uh, because it goes with the wind, falls right. out of the atmosphere. Um, a little bit about health concerns. I mean, one of the things that uh, I think people don't realize that we have been – not we, not me, right, but – the community has been studying the health effects of radiation since 1895, when x-rays were first discovered. Shortly after that, somebody was holding their hand in front of x-ray beam long enough that their hand turned red. And somebody went, aha, there must be some health effects. Right. And at that time, a program was begun to set safety standards. The first standard was set three years after the discovery of x-rays. And it's been progressing our knowledge of radiation and how it uh, interacts with biological systems and the types of damage it causes have been studied now for 115 years. Um, it's probably the most uh, advanced and sophisticated of all of the environmental health hazards that we study. For one major reason, we can measure radioactivity. Right? 
these guys in the nuclear engine, can measure it at levels that are unbelievably low. We can count single atoms in a liter of water. Right. But we cannot measure health effects uh, anywhere near those levels. It's impossible. The health scientists cannot really see. We can't see the health effects in the variation of background, which varies between uh, one and six millisieverts. But you know, the, the, over that range, we cannot actually distinguish health effects. So we know the health effects are not associated with, with our measurements. In fact, our measurements are about 12 orders of magnitude sensitivity, uh, but our ability to measure health effects is only about three orders in a three-order of magnitude range. So below that, uh, we just uh, we can find radionuclides, but not associated with disease. Okay, you you mentioned that in Japan um, they've been distributing potassium iodide for the local population mm -hmm. as a uh, for as precautionary yeah. for the um, radioactive iodine. Um, I know that some people here in Berkeley and in California more broadly have said this would be a sensible precaution for somebody here. What's your reaction well, to that? Generally in public health, you don't want to take an action uh, that can cause more harm than, than benefit. And the, uh, the uh, levels of iodine here are so low. I mean, the, the analogy I think you would make is, uh, you know, at, at Oakland Airport, where the jets are really loud, you should wear earmuffs to protect your ears. But, you know, I can hear the jets sometimes from my house, very faint sound. But why would I put on earmuffs to protect my ears from jet engine noise? Right. I mean, so there are precautions you take that make sense, but they're proportional to the, the magnitude of the, of the hazard. And actually, the other side of that is that there are, there are health risks associated with potassium iodide. Um, if, you know, for older people, there's a higher incidence of allergies. Uh, some people overdose themselves. There have been many reports of people going into poison control centers because they took too much potassium iodide. Uh, if, if someone is pregnant, uh, it, it's been associated with the hypothyroidism in, in, the, in the child that's born, and that leads to learning disabilities. So, so there's some, some actual risks associated with taking high doses of potassium iodide. So it's something that you know, makes sense if you're at a very high level of, of relative risk. Okay, you know? good. Um, have we yes, gathered some questions? Okay, thanks. Good. Um, so here's the first question, and I guess this is prob probably best addressed to Bob. Um, the news reported that hydrogen gas caused the reactor explosions. Where did the hydrogen come from? Uh, Ed explained it, but I'll try to explain it again. The reactor core consists of rods. He showed, uh, they're 12 feet long, but he showed a little piece of one, of um, zirconium <laughs> filled, with, filled with pellets of uranium. It's uranium ceramics, uranium oxide, that look like little aspirin tablets. They're a little bigger than that, and they're, they're filled with that. And, and it's in a big pot of water, and that's what uh, you boil the water and make steam in it makes electricity in the boiling water reactor. When the water goes away, the zirconium will oxidize in the steam that's around. Zirconium plus water makes zirconium oxide and releases hydrogen. Byproduct of hydrogen. And the hydrogen comes off. And that, uh, by the way, there was a big deflagration at Three Mile Island in 1979. It didn't destroy the building, but it was a big bang. And it was uh, because a certain amount of hydrogen accumulated in that building. 
in the three reactor buildings, there was hydrogen in all three. One and two, no, one and three, actually, it, we had a big, uh, destroyed the building, explosion. In number two, uh, a panel broke off the side. You've maybe seen the picture, and there's a hole about this size in it, and the hydrogen did not accumulate. So they were lucky enough not to lose that building. Came from okay. the came from the oxidation. Okay. Um, you you said earlier that it's we we don't know what's to blame at this stage. There's still too much investigation to go on. But you described the design of these reactors, and um, the spent fuel was in this elevated uh, containment, you know, above the reactor. Is, where is that design in place elsewhere in the world? Well, um, we have a couple of dozen reactors in the United States that are basically um, not identical, but they're, they're as identical as they For these purposes, they're identical, very similar. They're all designed by General Electric. And there is a comparable number of those around the world elsewhere. There, there, there are a dozen more and maybe even 15 more uh, in Japan besides these six. <laughs> And then they're scattered around the world in several other countries. There are probably um, 50 or 60 or 70 of them. I'm not quite sure what the number is elsewhere in the world besides the ones we have here. Okay. Um, question from the floor. Is it ever safe to build a nuclear power plant near an earthquake fault? Huh. Yes. Yes. It can be. Um, what that means is that we know how to design these reactors and the equipment in them to withstand these very large earthquakes. Um, by the way, I kind of think we would have known how to design it to withstand that tsunami. You needed a bigger, you needed a bigger tsunami wall than they had. <laughs> um, the mark of that is that, as best we can tell, this very large earthquake, as best we can tell, wasn't the cause of this accident. And certainly our reactors here uh, in California, Diablo Canyon and San Onofre, would have survived that. Uh, the, the motion they had there because they're designed for a larger motion than occurred there. And we have uh, analysis and tests that tell us that. So yes, it's fully feasible and it's been done. Um, if there hadn't had the tsunami, I'm convinced there wouldn't have been an accident. Um, by the way, you never know because of course the tsunami, the events that overtook us right. were prevented us from knowing whether or not some subsequent failures might have caused the trouble. But four years ago, not quite, there was an earthquake across the across Honshu on the on the um, west coast of of Honshu um, uh, in Japan. There were seven reactors on that site, not very different from these, similar, and they all survived it uh, without a large accident. And in fact, none of the safety systems were damaged there, even though that was the motion there was about twice as big as they were designed for. So yes, I think we can do that, but boy, it's it takes. It takes diligent and careful engineering. Okay. Um, okay. Somebody's questioned about the 50 people working at the plant. I think that was in the early days. I suspect there are more people there now. Yeah. Um, can we explain the exposure those workers are facing? And is it possible to put a number on their life expectancy or their risks of, of cancers at all? Mm -hmm. Well, to, to put a number on it, You'd have to know, you know more about the dose level. So they, they did move them out. I mean, they, they had, um, there's very high radioactivity in, in the working environment of the plants, but there are standards that they have to comply with. And as you may have read, they did have to make adjustments to the, uh, to the there are um, 
uh, emergency standards. So uh, I should point out, you know, everyone who operates uh, nuclear reactors uh, follows their international guidelines put out by the International Commission for Radiological Protection, and that dates back to the 1920s. It was first established in that period, uh, and it was established uh, uh, to protect workers primarily, and they study all of the information and come up with that they can. They collect data on um, uh, basic research on, on radiation exposures, and they form committees, and they um, make recommendations. So, uh, they have an international standard for workers, mm -hmm. uh, 50 millisieverts. Uh, it's actually 20 uh, averaged out and then 50 in a maximum year. But they also have guidelines for uh, emergency situations where you can go higher, uh, in, in particular when you're trying to protect the lives of other people. And those, those were engaged here. But still, there are uh, all of the standards put out by the International Commission are below uh, acute levels. They still set standards. So what they're trying to protect against is chronic disease, the incidence, the likelihood of getting chronic disease. So radi because radiation has acute effects, right, which happen immediately, and then chronic effects, what ha which ha happen over a longer term. Now, the chronic effects are, are no different than chronic effects from other environmental agents that cause cancer, benzene or arsenic things like that, act by similar mechanisms. And they also, when you're exposed to benzene, you increase your likelihood of getting cancer through these mechanisms of oxidative stress, DNA strand break. Right. It's not unique to radiation. Right. So the ICRP system is designed to limit the likelihood. ICRP stands for? International Commission on Radiological Protection okay. uh, is to protect people from immediate harm uh, and then minimize the likelihood that they would have any long-term disease. But there were workers who went over that standard, right? right. The ones who were in the water and got some, uh, obviously, some radiation, skin radiation burns. So that's where they, they quickly got them out. Um, but I, I, in the immediate aftermath of <laughs> the tsunami, I remember sort of watching television reports and um, commentators saying things like, uh, you know, the 50 workers unquestionably risking their lives, all of that. Is, is that, was that hyperbole or was that just we didn't really know what sort of exposures were at that stage? Well, well, the, like, well no. there wasn't any damage to any of the reactor cores for a day or two or three, depending on which unit you were. So certainly for the first day or two or three, there was no risk at all. I mean, excuse oh, me, no, yeah. no radiological risk. They were well, just yeah. in no the control room. Nothing until, outside of what they're allowed. Right, until they were below their, until the cores right. melted. And then it got bad. Right. Okay. okay. So in the first day, there wasn't any, I mean, things were working. Okay. okay. And, then, and then it really got bad. Okay. If, if we could move to another question. Um, somebody asks, for a person living in Tokyo, would you recommend any changes in routine to minimize exposure? For example, shower less frequently, drink bottled water, avoid certain foods, stay indoors, eat uncontaminated iodine-rich foods, wear disposable poncho if it rains, go away for 10 half-lives. Um, uh, you know, you know, so outside that 12-mile exclusion zone, and I think today they just extended it to some, some extent. Um, so if you're 50 miles away or 100 miles away, 
Um, are there sensible precautions people should be taking, or, or is, is that just needless worry? I think there's always the possibility that uh, uh, contaminated food could slip through. Uh, I, I would advise people to not buy food off the back of trucks or something. But uh, the Japanese are very good. They have very uh, rigorous standards for these things, and I think that they'll do fine. This, uh, uh, the radiation does not come out in circles. And so as time progresses, we now know there's a hot spot. It's about 30 kilometers northwest of the site. And so they will eventually probably get a kidney-shaped exclusion area to keep people out uh, close enough right. in. But the, uh, the levels in Tokyo are pretty low, and uh, I don't really think that just from normal lifestyle that people will get exposed to, to too much. Okay. I, I know all of you have given a lot of media interviews, and uh, I, I, I think... <laughs> I, We're asked a lot. Yeah, you're asked a lot, and I, I, I know one of you said to me before we started tonight that you'd, you had a call from somebody who was going to report um, from there, and you know, other than the questions they asked that were going to go on air, they said, am I going to be safe? You know, what, what's your answer to, to somebody well, like Well, I, actually, I did get a call from an ABC News guy last night, and you could tell from the tone of his voice, he wasn't talking about what he was going to say on air. He wanted to know if this was okay for him, personally, to be there. And the dose that he was worried about was in a village that was outside Fukushima, right outside the exclusion area, and he was going to be exposed to about 26 microsieverts per hour. And uh, my advice is that really members of the public shouldn't entertain doses like that but on the other hand, I've uh, been in fields like that, but I was running an accelerator at the time. I was earning a living doing that work. He's earning a living as a reporter. You have a different concept of risk when you're involved in an activity like that where there's some benefit. It was obviously going to be some benefit to our society if he was there reporting on what's going on and that sort of thing. But that is far from a dose that would kill him, and you could calculate some small probability, a few tenths of a percent, increase over his lifetime of getting a cancer from that if he were there for a week. Okay, so 26 microsieverts, I think you mentioned the background is 1 to 6, is, is that right? In that point? range, yeah. right, depending upon how. I mean, actually, to, to carry this further, it's like, um, uh, you know, what, I think people fail to understand that radiation damage is not a one-time event, it's cumulative. It, it really depends upon your cumulative lifetime exposure. So like when the EPA sets a standard for drinking water, that's based on the assumption that you will drink at that level for a lifetime and still not increase. So like when the water that, that you guys measure is above the EPA standard for a day, I mean, what you have to realize is that that's not how the standard was set. Right. It was set on the assumption that. And it's the same way that if, you know, um, it's like any environmental hazard, uh, if, if a lifetime at this level is dangerous, how dangerous is one day sure. at this level, right? right. Probably not very dangerous, because it, it, you have to average it out over a whole lifetime equivalent. Okay. okay. Um, you've spoken a lot about the releases of radiation to the air. Um, someone's uh, sent in a question about, um, they've heard of tens of thousands of gallons or perhaps tons of contaminated water being released into the ocean. Right. Um, what's the risk of that? I think both locally, but you know, this person specifically asks, you know, is there a danger that currents will carry that contaminated water into our waters? No. Well, um, the ocean is very large and very dispersive. And actually, the, 
that's going to dilute these compounds. One thing to remember is, I mean, we're concerned mainly with cesium right now. That's what's going into the water. It's relatively water-soluble. Uh, it does bioaccumulate, but it spreads out very fast into the ocean. And actually, I think the land deposition is a bigger problem because soil doesn't mix itself up and it doesn't dilute itself well. And actually, when you get cesium on the surface of the soil, it can get washed down and then stay there for much longer. So even though it's a very large amount of radioactivity, it's a very dispersive right. environment. Right. It's probably a better environment to put that in than on the surface of soils or buildings or other things where it has to be. And would the same hold true for seafood as well? Is there any risk, um, you know, sea life ingesting this and having higher levels of concentrated um, well, One thing is we'll probably be able to measure it, so, so people will find it. Mm -hmm. But the levels at which we measure, you, you'd really have to look. I mean, uh, again, because it's such a dispersive environment, I think the levels are going to go down fairly rapidly. Uh, the fish equilibrate, so the fish don't grab onto the cesium and hold it forever. Mm -hmm. They basically uh, reach chemical equilibrium with the ocean water levels. So if the ocean level goes down, the fish levels will, will follow. Okay. Um, someone's asked, uh, you know, this is kind of take a step back about sort of the explanation. So what's the difference between radiation, radioactive contaminated water, and fallout? You know, oh. these, you know, <laughs> Okay. Explain the difference between these concepts. <laughs> Any of us could do that, I think. Radiation. Well, one of you choose. Transfer of energy through space. Okay. Right. So radiation could be, it could be light. This, yep. we're, we're sitting under right, exactly. electromagnetic yep. radiation right now. It's just not the ionizing variety. Yep. That is an important thing. Sometimes people get excited about their cell phones, trying to kill them, things like that. And... And we are only interested in ionizing radiation. There's virtually no data that for radiological protection you worry about anything except uh, uh, this very penetrating ionizing radiation that can actually uh, cause DNA upsets in your, in your tissue and things like that. That's, that's uh, radiation. Uh, uh, fallout means typically particulate, uh, some, some size of, of particle typically in the micron range or so that can get into the upper atmosphere and go places. In the case of this accident, we, we peaked out in Berkeley on the 23rd of March, and that was roughly uh, uh, something like six or seven days after the biggest releases there. And, and if you ever go to the NOAA website with the, with the pilots and airmen go, you'll see that the winds aloft are published for the US. But there's a fairly consistent pattern going about 80 to 100 miles an hour up at about 10,000 feet above. And so that's the part that carried the, the bulk of the plume that we saw here in Berkeley uh, from that. And again, how that concentrates in plants, you sometimes worry about. You can have fallout in the form of, say, iodine going on the grass. Cows can eat the grass. They tend to send more of their iodine to the milk. And then babies can drink the milk, and that goes to their thyroid. So you can basically have a baby that's consuming the equivalent of a good fraction of an acre of land in the milk that they're drinking. So you worry about those things in biology that can concentrate things when physics is doing a pretty good job of dispersing them. Thanks. Um, now, many of the questions, you know, we, we kind of designed this evening around two parts, kind of what happened and what next. And many of the questions I've received are about the what next. So let's kind of go into that. Um, and... 
you know, I suppose you know, some of these questions are essentially where do we go from here? Um, and I suppose one of the fundamental questions is has what's happened in Fukushima um, changed a perspective on nuclear energy going forward, both the operation of existing plants and the prospects for uh, constructing more plants well, in terms of the science of it? Well, in terms of the engineering, you said science, but I'm going to say engineering. Sure. It could be that we're going to learn from this several different things that should have been designed differently. And if we do, even one of them, it could be several, we're not sure yet. And if we do, we're going to, the community is going to learn those lessons and make those changes. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in our country isn't shy about shutting a plant down if it needs it. Uh, that's happened a few times uh, over the years, but it, it's not common to shut it down, although sometimes that happens, or make the fixes during outages. But we don't know yet whether there are a lot of those or only a few. Um, surely the backfits to existing plants are going to be done if they're necessary, but it's easier to design a new plant with those features, a plant that hasn't been built yet, than to backfit an old one. It's, it's easy to understand that. It's easier to design a new car with a feature than to backfit an old car. Um, so all the new reactors presumably will learn those lessons too. And uh, how many reactors are in operation around the world today? In the U.S., we're, I think the number is 104, but it might be plus or minus one, 105. There are 420 or 430 around the world. We have about a quarter of them. And um, right now there are two or three dozen under construction, mostly in the Far East, but not exclusively, uh, on top of the 420 or so that are running. Right. Okay. Okay, good. Um, in terms of the health effects, um, you know, what areas, you know, where do we need to know more? You know, what science remains to be done to find out in, in this area? In, in the area of radiation health, um, I think the only, I mean, it, as I said, it's the m most mature of all the health effects type studies mm -hmm. that we've done because we can measure it so well. So we are currently at a level where we understand what happens at a population scale. We understand what happens at the cellular level. There are, there's really good experimentation. There are researchers around the world, I mean, not just in single places, that replicate this work of measuring what radiation does in individual cells, and basically how it disrupts cell function, how that's proportional you know, to, the, to the level of intensity. So I think the only thing we could do to improve it uh, would be to get uh, early uh, you know, what we're working on in other areas is trying to get early markers in the blood or genomic markers to see damage uh, before disease even develops, to, to be able to sort people out who might be able to, who might be at more risk of right. cancer from some exposure. But a lot of that's being done, um, actually radiation is not you know, uh, ranking very high among the environmental health concerns that we're looking at. We're looking at... Uh, Particulate matter is very important. It's relationship to cancer and heart disease, uh, a number of, of chemicals, and we're looking at flame retardants. There's a whole number of chemicals 
that the health community is studying, trying to understand not just not not studying populations to find an endpoint, but to find middle points on the way to that endpoint. So instead of waiting for cancer to occur, we look for the early markers. So, and again, radiation was first in this field. Some of the best, what we call biological markers of early effects, were first discovered for radiation. So it's it's uh, it's it's a pretty mature field in the health sciences. Are there estimates available of? I, I know um, we saw somebody circulating a paper on the number of extra cancer deaths mm -hmm. in Japan from this. Um, I don't know how accurate that paper was. Is it possible to put an estimate on this? I, I think it's difficult without knowing. I mean, you can't put the estimate on this without knowing what the cumulative uh, um, exposure is, right? You have to know the. You can make some estimate, estimates of what the committed long-term exposure it's could still, be, but you'd have to know still too what's in the environment. Now, it's been done with, with Chernobyl. They've actually, the World Health Organization has retrospectively gone in and look at all, looked at the measurements, uh, looked at the population exposures, uh, looked at global levels of, of transport, and made some estimates of what the, the health commitment is. Somebody, somebody's asking a question kind of related to that where they've said they've seen divergent data on Chernobyl um, <laughs> that it caused 4,000 deaths, yeah. it caused 500,000 deaths, it caused a million deaths. What's the real data on that? Well, the World Health Organization that looked at this, their conclusion was that they could document on the order of 50, and somebody has updated that maybe to 70. Now, these are the documented cancer deaths and worker deaths. And most of these deaths occurred in workers the others were uh, the fatal um, uh, thyroid nodules, but they did get—I um, um, think it was over 2,000. I think it was 2,000 thyroid nodules occurred in the population. Because they didn't stop right. the—they right. kept serving the milk produced locally. They did not move people out. Yeah, I mean they stayed where they were for too many days, and that reactor instead of this—that you know, whereas Fukushima is happening in slow motion. Uh, Chernobyl all at once. I mean, it exploded and caught fire. Uh, but then the, the World Health Organization has made an estimate for the region of a committed, you know, this is their long-term estimate of what, what will happen. And that's uh, uh, 4,000 early fatalities from cancer, half of them in the 200,000 workers, and then the other half in the other population. Now, the other number here, what causes confusion is that uh, other study, the, the world... The WHO study also looked at the global commitment. That is, you spread the radiation out and you calculate the 100-year the you know, cumulative, no, infinite, you actually integrate, so, but it's roughly 100-year committed dose to the worldwide population, which is 600,000 person seabirds. And if you take that number and multiply it by a linear slope factor for high-dose radiation, then you can come up with, I, I come up with about 24,000 from that WHO number. So it has a lot to do with what population you're looking at, whether you're looking at the region, uh, Europe, the whole world. Uh, what further confuses it is that not everyone uses the uh, ICRP, the International Commission's risk factor, and not everyone uses the US, bio, uh, the beer study, the biological effects of ionizing radiation. They have a, an estimated factor. Someone will use, uh, you know, find a, paper somewhere and say, oh, this person has a different slope on the risk line. 
Okay. Here's a question. Um, might be slightly difficult to answer, but it's it's a sort of version of what uh, in journalism we we kind of the question we constantly ask ourselves is um, why are the lying bastards lying to me? Oh. And so so someone <laughs> has has said, particularly addressed to you, Bob, and you, Ed. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, we are, we, we are in Berkeley, after all. Um, I may be lying, but I'm not a bastard. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, <laughs> that's, this is, so this is, to what extent... I don't think I am. Do you have a birth ex- certificate? To, to <laughs> what extent... I, I, yeah, do you, I do have a birth certificate. To what extent... <laughs> to what extent do you think your interpretation of this event's severity has been biased by the fact that your careers are tied to the survival oh, of nuclear energy well, I don't. I'm not sure that my career is tied to it. Um, I think it's fair to say that I've spent the last 30-odd years trying to figure out how to make these machines safer, and um, there's still more to do. So I'm just happy that... I'm sad that it happened, mm-hmm. but I'm happy to say that um, there's still more to do, and we're going to... Community I'm in is going to do that. I don't see that... Um, uh, that career tie is a, is a problem. But there's a very important thing people need to understand. Uh, these reactors are not perfectly safe. They n- never can be. There's no such thing as something that's perfectly safe. Those risks will always be there with these reactors, as they are with other high-technology mm-hmm. endeavors. Uh, I, I flew from, day before yesterday, I flew from Denver. And we got on Southwest just a week after there was a problem with Southwest. Um, you know, I trusted that Southwest did it right, but you don't know. And, of course, we take those risks because um, it's part of we were visiting a granddaughter, and we were not, we're not about to not do that on account of there's a risk. But um, the risks from this technology are apparently greater than we thought. This accident tells us that. That's for sure. Nobody anticipated this. Whether they're unacceptable is something the broader society is going to have to figure out. I'm not going to speculate on that. In fact, I'm not even sure we know yet. But that's for sure. And one of the sort of humbling things is that despite all the efforts to try to make these things safe, somehow these, and there were three of them, not just one, so it was three of them, and they were repeated. Uh, The same issue. Somehow these reactors got into trouble that nobody in the engineering community anticipated would happen in the way it did. So that's a humbling experience, and we're going to all have to um, not only eat crow, but try to figure out what to do about it. Okay. okay. So, oh, well, I don't have a dog in this fight as much as Bob does. I, I teach uh, some courses in Homeland Security and nuclear fusion. Uh, however, uh, I'm committed to education and nuclear engineering because I've been doing it since 1979. And, and uh, uh, all I can say is that in Berkeley we have a variety of bright people, and, and, and nuclear technology encompasses uh, the existing fission technology, plus a lot of other things like medical imaging and, and uh, plasma research and things like that. So we're sort of all over the map, and, and so uh, I, I don't feel like I'm some sort of pawn in the great game of nuclear technology myself. I, I'm sort of optimistic that uh, uh, these things will have a way of... Uh, uh, writing themselves over time. It's, it's pretty clear to me that we don't have great alternatives to nuclear energy at the present time. You kill a lot more people with coal, even with a reactor accident like this happening uh, every six months. So, uh, uh, like you say, certainly we're learning a lot about it. I thought it was very touching when 
the engineers at Fukushima wanted to get up on the roof of buildings number five and six and started cutting holes in them while, while uh, the other reactors had exploded. Uh, that was a sign that they were doing their own engineering modification on the site, and they didn't want to wait for some report on that subject to come out. Oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, that, to me, shows that the, the people that are actually mining the store are trying to learn from their mistakes and, uh, and, and not just cover themselves and go on to the next state. Nuclear engineers are, are uh, uh, very, very uh, committed and tough people, and these, you can see that that extended to these workers, too. These uh, Fukushima 50 are examples. I've, I've never met anyone that's not like them. I don't think that they're that unusual in the business. A lot of people are are quite committed to doing these things as safely as they can, and they're, they're, uh, are very concerned with not uh, 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 injuring or radiating or otherwise members of the public, especially in communities like this. They're usually part of those communities, and they don't want to have a bad reputation. So the industry will roll forward. Uh, uh, I think that the, a lot of the gleeful speculation about a nuclear renaissance and lifetime extension of these plants to age 70 and that sort of thing will probably abate for a while, but it's certainly not going to uh, uh, cause everyone to start an immediate moratorium on nuclear power tomorrow. We can't afford it. We'll have blackouts. There's just nothing else out there right now. Um, you mentioned you teach uh, nuclear fusion. Somebody has put in a question says, saying, since there seem to be a, seems to be a problem of radioactive waste with fission and also these problems of you know, what, what's happened with releases, what about fusion? Um, you know, Send money. We need about 13 billion euros. We're building a plant in France. It's going to be great. It's, uh, it's going a little slow at the present time. Uh, <clears throat> but it does have the potential of having about one one-hundred thousandth of the biological risk of fission. So we're working on it. Okay. When, I mean, I... Doing my calculation, I was an undergraduate about the same time you were, and at that time there was talk about, you know, fusion was going to be the great future, and that's a good number of years ago. I mean, <laughs> it's always thirty years off. That's okay, all. so it's still thirty years. Okay, the, yes. the fusion okay. comes thirty years off yeah. in the fifties. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, okay, quite a few questions. I, I've got a lot of questions that are sort of on the perhaps more technical aspects of some of this. Um, somebody sent in, um, there's some who are proponents of thorium U-233 reactor designs. Um, yeah. uh, the uranium lobby has suppressed development of such designs. Um, you want me to I, can't on that? I can't evaluate that question. So. Well, um, all of our reactors run on uranium, which is mined and enriched and uh, is a perfectly good reactor fuel. But thorium is, a, is, is an element, um, thorium oxide is an ore, which is all around the world too, and which can be used to make a perfectly good reactor. But it hasn't been. There's a lot of thorium out there, but it hasn't been. And part of that's historical um, because those designs do in fact work. The people that own thorium mines accuse the uranium people of suppressing them, and I have no idea whether that's true. Uh, the fact is that, like a lot of technology, something gets a head start, and then it just becomes the technology of choice, even if something else that might be better uh, uh, or, or we don't even know is better has come along. But there isn't any reason why those reactors couldn't work. On the other hand, the sort of problems that they, we just saw would plague them, too. 
You've got to design a reactor that can survive a blackout. You've got to design a reactor that can survive earthquakes. You've got to design a reactor that can get flooded and continue to run. You've got to design a reactor that can, that can be controlled properly and where measurements can be made to understand it. Okay. Um, Those sorts of fundamental... Can I add, yeah, add sure. something Absolutely. on that? Okay. Uh, uh, thorium, yes, does have exactly the same back end, the same fission product structure that, that uranium has. Uh, India is particularly interested in thorium because they, they have a lot of, of thorium it. and they don't they have a lot much of uranium. Uh, I saw a flow chart that showed something like 140,000 kilograms of uranium-233 moving around in the system and thorium breeding is what their goal was. The problem also with thorium, I mean, it's no worse than, than uranium, but it's no better. It's just the, other, the other problem is it still has the same nuclear weapon diversion potential. In fact, uh, just to prove it, we blew off a nuclear explosive made with uranium-233 a long time ago. It had a perfectly fine yield. It was out in Nevada somewhere. And uh, uh, so really there's no real advantage to thorium except that if you own uh, thorium, uh, it can serve as a fuel, nuclear fuel, at least as well is uranium. And, and while we're at it, let's talk about MOX, because there's been some, some time in the press about how there was some MOX fuel in this reactor number three, which had a little mishap as well. Now, the MOX in there was... You should explain MOX. Oh, MOX means mixed oxide fuel, a mixture of uranium and plutonium, right? So somehow that deadly plutonium is out there that's the most deadly thing on Earth. It's about ten times more toxic than uh, lead in your car battery, and it's about a millionth as toxic as some venom from some snakes in Brazil, so it's not the worst thing. But uh, MOX is controversial because it involves plutonium and all of that. But again, it has no increased threat in the back end of the cycle from these fission products and the decay heat and all the engineering problems of fission systems like this. And it does have the advantage that we're sitting on an incredibly large inventory of plutonium from our our walk through the 20th century with nuclear weapon development. And this will help uh, burn down the supply of plutonium. So uh, the real risk with plutonium is not a few micrograms of it getting up in the atmosphere, but somebody showing up on your doorstep with five kilograms of it in the form of a nuclear explosive. And so uh, we like MOX. We, we want to see reactors go forward with MOX technology. It was not a contributory to this accident in any way. Okay. Several of the questions are about, I mean, that, that answers, I think, some of these questions. <clears throat> you know, is there a reactor design that's out there present that you would say is, this is the safest design, or is it hmm. advantages and disadvantages to yeah. different ones? Well, there are, of course, differences, just as there would be in different aircraft or different, different automobiles. But if it's a very large reactor like these, or like the ones we're running, their safety risks are comparable from one to the next. They're different from one to the next because of different design features and details. But their safety risks are similar. The large improvement in safety that we're all envisioning would come if uh, somebody could design an economical small reactor. And there's a lot of work going on uh, just in the last few years all over the world uh, of groups and large companies and some of the biggest companies and also small groups designing small, so-called small modular reactors where to make 1,000 megawatts instead of one Diablo Canyon, which is, by the way, it's Diablo's more than 1,000, you'd have 10 100s. Mm -hmm. So there are all these small reactors, each one of which is safer for sure than the big ones. But uh, no one has succeeded yet in designing one of those that can actually be deployed that's economical. And the reason is because of the diseconomies of scale. Right. A lot of work going on. So that's for sure. There isn't anybody 
There isn't anybody in the community I'm in that doesn't agree that those smaller reactors have a tremendous potential for being safer. On the other hand, if you're going to have five of these, you've got to have 50 of those. Right. And when you do the arithmetic, it may not be, in the end, all that, uh, just such, such a huge difference. Okay. okay. Some, somebody's sent in a, a very um, basic question. Why are spent fuel rods stored on site with reactors? Oh, they need not be. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, to, to, be, to be fair, when the spent fuel is removed from the reactor at first, it's much too hot thermally and much too radioactive, which is hot radioactively, to be stored uh, anywhere but underwater for a few years. Depending on how much radiation it has, it might be two years or three years or five years. But after that, it could be, and nowadays is, stored in what we call dry casks, which are in the air rather than underwater. And those could be anywhere. They could be transported anywhere uh, to a central repository someplace. But at the moment, they're basically all on the same site just because that's the political accommodation. But they need not be. Okay. <coughs> What's going to be done with the reactors at Fukushima? Well... The prediction, it's still too early to say, is that it's going to be just like what happened to Three Mile Island. Uh, Three Mile Island sat, this was 1979, as, as I, everybody in this room uh, who's older than I am knows, and some of the younger ones may not. It was 1979. Uh, the core was destroyed in one of those reactors, and it was two or three years of sitting there while it, while it decayed radioactively and also thermally until finally it was safe enough to, to, to be taken apart. And the whole thing was taken apart, decontaminated. A whole lot of radioactive um, stuff was removed from the metals. And um, it's still in storage. The core itself, the melted core, was taken apart. And it was shipped to Idaho, where it sits in a vault somewhere out um, west of Idaho Falls in a safe vault waiting for ultimate disposal. It was ultimately to be disposed of in the Yucca Mountain Repository in Nevada that's now politically dead, as you know. Uh, and I'm sure that's what the Japanese are going to do. It's going to be a long and expensive proposition. And part of it is because this is, um, the, the, uh, unlike a Three Mile Island, this is uh, a much more, it looks, looks to us like the mess is much more complicated than a Three Mile Island. Okay? So three Mile Island, this is, every, a, this is a 10, 15 year. Everything at Three Mile Island stayed inside that vessel, except for a little airborne stuff. Right. That is apparently not true here. There's a huge contamination in other buildings, in the, not just inside the vessel, but inside the primary containment, inside the secondary, in the reactor building, in the environs. There's much more contamination on the site than at Three Mile Island, and that's going to be a really expensive and possibly dangerous mess to clean up. Okay. It's going to take a long time, too. Okay. The, the three of you are scientists, and you know, we're here tonight to talk about the science of these issues, as far as one can judge it. A lot of the questions I have here are kind of on the policy end of things. And I know some of them, you know, that you're not policymakers. <laughs> but you know, one that I think there's several questions relating to, and you may have views. Um, and actually, you know, Ed, I think you answered this to some extent in, in your initial remarks. Somebody asked, does the public have a fundamental right to know about releases of radiation? Yes, sir. Absolutely, and Absolutely. Uh, it's uh, uh, important that uh, uh, the members of the public that have the competence and capability to do this continue to do this. Um, 
you, you have this problem inherent in the system of the lying bastards theory you were referring to. And that is you have a lot of competent people that work in the government or in the, in the national laboratories of the industry that can't talk for one reason or another. And then you have people that have no idea what they're talking about, and they talk all the time. And then you have, you have people in academe that may have some, some uh, capability in this area, and, and they owe it to the public to uh, explain things as best they can. That's why our graduate students are up on the roof measuring these things and reporting them. And, and they, again, are without blame or guilt. They would, you know... Uh, uh, they would like to get up to the $10 an hour level one of these days. They're not <laughs> trapped by the industry in any way. But, but, but there's a very important comment that I hope everybody here understands. As best we can tell, the Japanese have been entirely and completely for forthcoming. Every measurement they have made has been uh, made public right away, and there's no evidence of anything but that. They've been candid about the confusion that they faced when they had different measurements of the same thing by different groups. They've been candid about the confusion in their interpretations of some of the difficult measurements they've made and, and analyses. So um, they deserve commendation for their candor, which was unusually um, complete, as best anybody can tell, on our side of the Pacific. And I think that's, uh, that's uh, of course, a wonderful mark uh, of, uh, of their culture. The opposite, of course, was the 1986 Soviet uh, situation where they hid it. The and, important you know, they word just, here they just hit it. Sure. Is, is reach back. That's, that's the word that the nuclear professionals like to use. And, and at yeah. Three Mile Island, you saw it when Jimmy Carter was walking through the control room two or three days after the accident. Right. That let you know the rest of the government was there, too. And similarly, uh, you, you can't imagine the number of midnight emails we've got back and forth reanalyzing right. their water radiochemistry and yeah, all the complexes. And, and the IEA is on the scene. Uh, uh, one of my former students is the chief engineer for General Electric. Those guys are uh, going to be ready for stress leave pretty soon because they've been working around the clock trying to support the Japanese in their effort. So. so, I mean, it's interesting to me that you say the Japanese government has been very open and forthright because certainly yes. in the first week or so, I mean, I remember reading articles that you know, the Japanese were relying on statements made by Secretary Chu for their information as opposed to the government in Japan? I, I don't believe that, actually. Okay. Okay. That, that's, you haven't had that no, I, I think I kind of almost have, not quite firsthand, but I just don't believe that. We didn't have very much information at first, not because they were hiding it, but because they didn't. Mm -hmm. I don't have any evidence that there's anything that they knew that they didn't tell not only us, but others around the world. Well, it was hard to get, say, water chemistry data when it was, uh, it was right. clear that the water could kill you in a few hours of exposure. They're not necessarily willing to stand around there with fishing poles and yeah. look at it. But they've, uh, uh, they've been in an upward spiral now where they've been going in all the places. And, and uh, one reporter said, well, then why didn't they discover this until yesterday? Well, that's when they turned on the lights. And they were able to go into buildings and look, and then they find things. No, it was that sort of thing. It was just so, too radioactive at first. Too. Yeah, it was too radioactive at first. But then, uh, uh, for example, you may recall they they found the two bodies from people that died drowned in the bottom of a turbine building, and they didn't find those until last week. Why? Well, they couldn't go in there. Right. And so, as they learn more about this, they go in more places. We're hoping it's sort of one of these upward spirals where right. more and more they do things. I haven't seen any effort that anyone in this industry is not 100 percent diligent. 
Okay. Um, you, you, you commend the Japanese government. You, none of you have mentioned TEPCO, um, responsible for the... I mean, is there anything one can say about their response, or is that difficult to judge? Well, on our side of the ocean, our communications have generally been from the government, not okay. from the company. The company tells the government, and so it's hard to judge, I think, is the, from where I sit. Well, we have a liaison with TEPCO through my department, through a, a liaison in general with Japanese nuclear technology. So there has been communication. Yeah, there has been. But uh, uh, that's the engineers at TEPCO. And uh, uh, none of the engineers have been indicted for fraud. And uh, uh, there has been some history of that in the past in that company, but not the engineers. The to Tokyo Electric Power Company runs more reactors than any other company in the world, I think, except the French. French yeah, right. The French are, are ahead of them, but yeah. okay, it's a okay. large, very large company. Okay. Um, somebody, you know, this uh, basic question, given everything you said tonight, would you feel comfortable with having your children or grandchildren living close to a nuclear reactor? <laughs> yep. Yep. Living close to a coal-powered plant? Less. No. less uh, <laughs> but yes, by the way, yes, but less. Okay. Okay, good. Um, Where you don't want to be is right downstream of an earth-filled dam. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of earth-filled dams that are poorly engineered that make electricity, and if you don't know that, you should. And they fail every so often. Or behind a donkey in a third world somewhere. I mean, generally speaking, what's hard about the radiation statistics also it's is it's to hard to part out uh, the other lifestyle things that go along with these uh, accidents and scenarios sure, like that. Uh, there's a, a lot of people are going to be under stress. There's been one suicide, which is directly related to this accident from yes. a farmer that lived in the area there. Well, that, that, that yeah, counts. Another, and, and, another one. And uh, uh, on the other hand... Just little things like people are less likely to eat fresh vegetables. They may not want to go jogging for their two miles every night because Fair they're enough. afraid of the air, things like that. And those things, uh, when multiplied by several million people in society, do affect the yeah, uh, do. statistics, and it's hard to part those out. Or if they smoke cigarettes, they might smoke more because they're under stress. And, and things like that are all going to be embedded in those statistics, and you may never get a straight answer for what's going on. And, and just to, I mean, this is not... Hearsay. I mean, this is well documented in Chernobyl that the disease burden of the anxiety and the fear and the disruption was worse than the disease burden from the radiation because people would not eat. They got scurvy because they wouldn't eat fresh vegetables. Uh, they uh, got depression. Uh, so, you know, whether this is allocated to the nuclear accident dumb, or the kind of true. fear that's generated by it and the way people sort of build up this fear. And it's actually in public health, this whole, the whole study of stress hormones and how they, how they uh, impact the body is now a very important area. I mean, they're actually as bad for your body as almost any environmental chemical we've ever seen. I mean, we've, under stress, we flood our body with chemicals that are more dangerous than things that come in from the outside. Okay. I mean, we just have another couple of minutes. I'm just curious, in, in closing, could each of you explain, you know, we obviously can't gather this group together every time um, there's something in the news that 
happens with radiation or whatever, where should people look, you know, in terms of your knowledge, to understand the risks themselves? And you know, where are reliable sources of information um, that you could recommend if people want to figure this out for themselves when these things happen? Well, Is there anywhere? Well, on the reactor side, there's a wonderful source of information from the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is a UN agency in Vienna. They have their own website. They have top-flight information about this event, which is updated twice a day. And you can go to the IAEA, International Atomic Energy website, and see it. It's just wonderful. They're, they're doing a good job, and it's straight, and it's, uh, as best I can tell, unbiased. And they also have a wide variety of information, and by the way, 11 languages or something, of course, we're all speaking English, uh, about reactors and the safety and the risks and so on. On our side, the best place is the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Mm -hmm. It's your, your, and my uh, government agency. Okay. Okay. Um, on the health side, um, I usually go first to the National Commission on Radiological Protection. That's our, our national scale representative to the international community. And what I found on their website is they list links to all kinds of other sites with basic yeah, information sure. on radiation health, how to understand uh, radiation. They link to sites in Japan which have uh, real-time monitoring data that you can check into. So I found that a very useful site to go to because it links to so many sure. other useful sites. Fair. Could you repeat that name? The National Commission on Radiological Protection, if you just, I think if you Google NCRP, they should pop right up. Yeah. And then they're in Washington or Bethesda. Bethesda. I'm sort of a contrarian. I would work backwards. I would start with Greenpeace. And I would That's go a from good there. suggestion. And, and, and I read that, and the Sierra Club, and all the position papers. And read them. The, the 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 better written statements aren't exactly as as uh, anti-nuclear as you might expect. Go from there to Manchester dot the, the Guardian site and and look at what they have to say. It's Guardian.co.uk. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, It's no longer and, in Manchester. Okay, but uh, <laughs> wherever it is, it, they have a good website. Go from there, and then and then go back to the New York Times and start sort of letting each story debunk the one before it. And That's you will arrive at the truth by circling in. And uh, uh, I, I would never suggest to a, a bunch of people in Berkeley that they go right to websites run by the suits, by the lying bastards. But you may end up realizing that they really don't have the agenda, and some of them actually have the facts. And then you can form your own opinion once you've yeah, seen the entire bell curve of things right, that are out there. Right. Well, yeah, the Union of Concerned Scientists is another one. Very useful. I mean, they really I, are. I look at that they stuff vet all. their information quite well. And, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Okay. The, the Union of Concerned Scientists. The Union yeah. of Concerned Scientists. It's in Cambridge, Mass. It's a group that generally has been opposing reactor development and deployment for the longest time, but their website is factual and reliable, and you can count on its being uh, correct. I and plagiarize rather material from I mean, the lecture notes. It's okay. okay. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just, you know. And and best yes. best known for having the doomsday clock, the number, uh, absolutely, the number of minutes to to midnight that uh, human humanity has. Um, well, that's. I think those are incredibly helpful um, right. suggestions. Um, I think it just remains to thank. 
um, the friends of the Lawrence Berkeley Lab for organizing this evening. Um, I'm pleased. You know, Bob, Ed, and Tom, and uh, all of you who came out tonight to um, listen to um, the three of them. It's a round of applause for our panelists. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming.